Let's pray together. Father, it is an incredible thing to reflect on, to behold with the eyes of faith your eternal Son who has been the object of your affections from before you said, let there be light, and to see him coming down to a world of rebels in order that he might redeem us. It is a thing that if you grant us by your spirit that we might see its wonders, we would be left speechless and have nothing left to do but praise your glorious name. And I pray that that is what happens this morning as we gaze through John 1, as we gaze in the scriptures and see this wonderful reality that the word became flesh and dwelt among us sinners and brought us into your very family where we don't only call you God, but Abba, Father, I pray that whether we are not Christians in this room, we were invited here by a friend, or we don't remember a day where we didn't call Jesus Christ Lord, that regardless of where we are, your spirit would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to see and gaze at the wonders of your Son incarnate, that we might find life in him for the first time. Or, Lord, we might see anew the wondrous life that we have in him. I pray that in his wonderful name, Jesus' beautiful name, amen. We've been observing over the past two weeks, this is our third week, together as a church we have been observing Advent, the idea that we, we stop the busyness of our life during this Christmas season to reflect on the coming of our Savior into a little town of Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, and we started two weeks ago, not in Bethlehem, but actually as far back as we could possibly start. We started in Genesis 1. We started in the beginning in our garden paradise where everything was good, where everything in our world was perfect and flourishing everywhere, where everything in our souls was totally vulnerable and totally unashamed, and we walked with the God that we were made for in the cool of the day, and we looked at that wonderful garden paradise and we observed, it didn't take long until we hit Genesis 3, the, the great tragedy of our garden existence where we rebel against that wonderful God and are led into exile. And we looked at three different ways in which we've been brought into exile. There's an external exile. The once good flourishing world is now broken and produces thorns and thistles and frustrations and sweat in our souls, there's an internal exile where rather than being naked and unashamed, we're in a state of constant shame and hiding. We hide from one another, and worst of all, we hide from our God. Third thing, there was an eternal exile. We're sent out of the garden. There's a cherub with a flaming sword guarding the way back to the tree of life, and we are sent away. And there was a great tragedy that happened in Genesis 3, and it's a tragedy that still we exist in. We are in exile. But we saw right in the middle of the announcement of that tragedy in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise that one day, though the serpent whispered lies in Eve's ear and drew Adam and Eve away from their good and wonderful God into death, one day... Someone would come 
and he would crush the head of the serpent, and he would undo all these terrible exile realities. And so we talked about how since that original promise in Genesis 3.15, we are now a people who look and long for a Savior to come deliver us from this exile that we exist in. And Lee last week looked, he had the unenviable task of basically covering the entire Old Testament. I was like, give me three verses, you take, you know, 5,003 or however many are in the Old Testament. He said, I got it. And so he covered how the Old Testament existence of Israel, of one of looking and longing and exile with this great hope. God keeps giving promises, promises of a king that will come one day, of justice and mercy that one day reign together perfectly one day. And one day God will be with us. But we saw that that hope was continually frustrated. There's kings, there's even kings after God's own heart like David, but they ultimately fail and fall. There's imperfect justice and mercy. And God is with us in the temple, but there's still a very thick veil dividing his presence from ours. We still need Moses to go up on the mountain and we tell him, we don't, we don't want to talk to God directly, you talk to God for us. There's still a very clear and present divider. God is with us, but he's not really with us. So that hope is a constant frustrating hope. We're still a people who look and long. We're still a people who cry out together, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. And today we get to celebrate his appearing. Today we finally get to sing with all of our might the line, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. So we will look, we will arrive finally at Bethlehem this morning. We'll look at three things as we look at John 1. We'll look at Emmanuel, God with us. We'll look at light with us. And we will look at life with us. God with us, light with us, and life with us. And we will be looking at not probably what you would have thought of as just kind of a typical Christmas passage. We're looking at John 1. Maybe you heard Josh read that and you were like, isn't Luke 2 a bit better? We've got shepherds in the field, right, looking at the angels, right? Charlie Brown quotes it or Linus quotes it. He drops his blanket and just boldly proclaims, this is the meaning of Christmas. Why aren't we going for the obvious ones? We've got some in Matthew as well. We're, we're, we're looking at John. Because though this might not seem like a Christmas passage, it is very much a Christmas passage. And in fact, John starts where we started in our series two weeks ago. Where does John start in his Christmas passage? In the beginning. He starts in the beginning. Let me read it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So why does John start in the beginning, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, rather, are the synoptic gospels. They're very similar. They all kind of start in the same place. They start at Jesus' birth, right? They start at Christmas, uh, in a sense. And why does John decide to be a different, d- different? Is he just kind of the hipster apostle, right? He's the one who Jesus loved. And so he's like, I just got to have a nice little new angle. Is that why? No. 
I think, at least for our purposes, John is showing us something from the outset. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke will slowly unfold. As we've seen, we've been preaching through Matthew. We've seen the slow unfolding of who is this Jewish rabbi who's healing the sick and is teaching with such authority, and even the winds and the waves obey him. Who does man say that I am? And there's this slow unfolding. It takes chapter and chapter and chapter to finally get there. John, on the other hand, wants us to see from the outset who this is that's born in Bethlehem. He wants you to see from the beginning, as he starts in the beginning, that what is happening on Christmas is something as significant, you might say, as creation itself. As God says, let there be light in Genesis 1, something as significant is happening in John 1, something new, something history-shaping is happening. And perhaps for us, especially after last week, if we looked over and over again at frustrated hope, maybe the first thing John would want us to see is that what's happening here on Christmas is God is not just sending another hero into our exile. God's not just sending another David or another Samson into our exile. Remember, John knows his Old Testament really well. John knows what it's like to live in this exile existence that you and I know all too well. He knows his scriptures. He knows the patterns of frustrated hope. If you were to ask someone in John's day, what is the greatest story of deliverance for a Jew? What is the greatest story of deliverance in your history, O Israelites? They would say, without a close second, it's the Exodus. It is the Exodus. We see this, notice this pattern in Exodus 2. During those many days, Israel has been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It's gone from bad to worse. The high and mighty days of Joseph are gone. The king of Egypt does not remember Joseph or the blessings that God brought about through him. There's been century after century of exile, slavery, and see what happens. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You have a people in slavery crying out to God. Their cries ascend to the heavens and reach God's ears. He sees them. He remembers them. And the very next chapter we see is the burning bush. He gets Moses, and he sends Moses, go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses does. Pharaoh says, no, you might know the story. There's great and mighty plagues. God decreates Egypt in a very very real way. He turns their light into darkness. He turns their life, the life of their firstborn, to death. He displays his infinitely greater power than all the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh himself. Israel goes free. They plunder the Egyptians on their way out. They stop at the shores of the Red Sea as the Egyptian army changes their mind and pursues them. And God shows the even greater display of power. He parts the Red Sea. Israel walks through on dry land. And as Egypt pursues them, the waves crash. He destroys the most powerful army in the world. And in Exodus 15, we get the great song of Moses where the whole nation just lifts up and praises their wonderful, mighty, powerful God that just took a nation of slaves and deliver them from the most powerful, mighty nation in the world. That is the story 
of Israel, the deliverance that every Israelite would have clung to. And if you keep reading, in the very, very next chapter, here's what we see after this great story of deliverance as they're wandering through the desert on their way to the promised land. We see this in the next chapter, Exodus 16. The whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're delivered, and what's the first thing we see after their great celebration of their deliverance? They are still in exile. Pharaoh and Egypt are not the enemy Israel and you and I need deliverance from. There is a far greater enemy, the serpent himself, and the sin that has such deep roots in our heart that we need deliverance from. After the greatest moment of deliverance, we see they're right back where they started. There's deliverance, but are they delivered? And so, though delivered from Egypt, they are still in exile crying out, we need a Savior, and it's not Moses. We'll see him fail. We'll see every so-called hero in the Old Testament fail, and John knows this very, very well. And he wants you to know, as your cries ascend to the heavens and you're in exile, the pattern will not repeat itself on Christmas night. As you cry out in exile and your cries ascend to the heavens and God hears, is he just sending you and me another Moses? No. When God hears and he sees and he knows, who does he send? to Bethlehem on Christmas night, his son, the word who is with God and is God, the one who made all things and in whom all things hold together, the one whom Colossians 1 said is before all things, the one whom Hebrews 1 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That son of God has come down and taken on flesh and is dwelling among us. It's not another prophet. It's not another king. It's the king of kings. John is not repeating the pattern to give you expectation of partial deliverance or frustrated hope. Finally, in Bethlehem, our hopes are going to be fulfilled. God has come to dwell with us. The king of the universe has taken on flesh and yoked himself to us and dwelt among us. That's who the baby in the manger is, swaddled in Mary's lap. The last book in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series is called The Last Battle. Uh, I would imagine it's probably the least popular, but towards the end of, of the last book, there is a great battle, hence the name, that kind of centers around this stable, 
There's a, there's a big war happening and there's this stable in the middle and Tyrion, who's the main character during the course of the battle, makes his way into this stable and as he stumbles in, he's expecting to be in a stable. So he's expecting a roof and it to be dark and there to be some hay in there. But as he kind of gets his bearings, he looks up and there's no roof there. In fact, there's this wonderful blue sky. And as he begins to kind of look around, he sees just green, lush grass everywhere. And he, in fact, meets all the main characters of all the books of Narnia. So he sees Peter and Lucy and Edmund. They're all there and they're kind of asking each other how they got there. They're a little bit disoriented and they're all kind of coming to grips that they think they've died and this is where they've shown up. And as Tyrion is looking around, he actually sees the stable door, but it's just there by itself. In this great, big, wide open country, he sees the door and he kind of looks around it and then he finally looks through it. There's a little crack in the door and he looks through it and he sees through the door, there's still the battle taking place outside. The enemy's wondering what to do. They're wondering where he went and all these sorts of things. And he steps back and he just says, huh, it seems like the inside of the stable is bigger than the outside. And Lucy chuckles and says, yes, in our world too, there was once something inside a stable that was bigger than the whole world. And that's who's lying in the manger for you. The one who named the stars has become dust for you. The baby lying in Mary's lap holds the universe in the palm of his hand, and he has stepped off his heavenly throne to come for you. That's who we see in Bethlehem, and that's what John wants you to see from the get-go. God has come for you. That is your rescuer. That is your Savior. That is who has heard your exile cries and responded and come. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So John's not slowly unfolding like Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He wants you blown away in wonder. He wants you in speechless Ah, as you see who it is that has come. One of, my, one of my favorite psalms, just personally, is Psalm 8. If you've been here any number of times, you just hear me quote it all the time. Uh, it's where David, just simply at nighttime, walks outside and he looks up and he says this, looking at the stars, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? David's outside and he's gazing at just seemingly infinite, wonderful, heavenly realities, the stars burning in the sky, so wonderful, so much infinitely bigger than our tiny earth and certainly so much infinitely bigger, bigger than tiny man that does nothing but sin against you. When I look at all these wonderful things, the, the heavenly paintings that you do, oh, infinitely mighty, powerful God, who am I that you give me a thought? Or who am I that you care for me? And it, it blows me away. And I think one of the even, the, the greatest thing about Psalm 8 is that you and I 
can take it even further than David could. David gazes at the heavens and says, who am I that you're mindful of me? You and I get to gaze at the manger and say, who am I that you're not just mindful of me, but that you sent your son for me? The infinitely holy God of the universe who owes you nothing but eternal hell, the one that you have rebelled against, the one that all of your sins are aimed at, looked at you and sent his son to take the wrath that ought to be poured out on your head so that you could be clothed in his son's righteousness and brought into his family. Wonder of all wonders, Emmanuel has come to be with us. What is man that you're mindful of us? What is man that you have sent your son for us, O God? That is the message of Christmas. And here's one of the things I find most ironic about the message of Christmas. I think many of us, I mean, just, I mean, I wrestle with this, and I know you do, just from talking with you. Many of us, ironically, when we talk about God, whether in our prayer life or just how we naturally view God in our lives, we often view God the way we view Santa. He's far off. He's distant. We send him requests, right? You write Santa letters, you send God prayers, and he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake, and he really, really cares about your morals. And if you do good, maybe he'll answer your prayers. If you do good, maybe you'll get presents under the tree. If you do bad, you're going to get coal. And that's best case scenario. We don't really know if he likes us. He might just be filling the quota. But he is checking his list. And he is far off and distant. A lot of us, that is how we tragically view our God. And I want you to see how radically opposite the message of Christmas is. He does see you when you're sleeping. He does know when you're awake. He saw you from before the foundation of the world. He has seen your morals, and he hasn't seen any good. He's seen only bad. Your best offerings are filthy rags before him. And what does he do in response? Does he send coal, or does he send his most precious treasure of all, his son? Do you see how opposite the message of Christmas is in Bethlehem to how we typically view God? A distant, cold moralist who cares about us so long as we're good. Whereas Christmas says, I know you're not good. I know you cry out right after I deliver you from Egypt. I've known you need me to take your heart of stone away, give you a living heart of flesh. I know you, and you need me to write my law upon your heart. I know you need me to put my spirit in you. I know you need me to send someone to do what you can't, to live the perfect life you cannot live. And I will send him to do that and take the death, take the eternal death that you deserve. That is what we see from our God as he sends his son to us. Romans 5 points out, how does God show his love for us? It's while we were still sinners, while we were still bad in exile, he sent his son for us. Christ died for us. Oh, how radically different your God is. How radically different John and all the scriptures are screaming at you, your God is, than how we typically view him. 
It makes it, Christmas makes it so that we can never again wonder, is he getting my letters? Does he hear me? The baby in the manger says, oh yes, your father knows what you need long before you ask him. And he has answered your prayers far more than you could ever ask or think. He hasn't just sent you stuff, he sent you himself. He sent you his son. Now my question for you is, does that Christmas reality settle on you? Do you see the God of the manger? Do you see Emmanuel coming for you? Or is he still abstract Santa? Do you say, yeah, our cries have gone up, but it's just like abstract cries. He doesn't hear my cries. No, no. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He's known your name from before he said, let there be lights. And he sent his son so that he might call you eternally son, daughter in Christ. Do you see that? Is that how you live? Do you live in that Christmas reality? God has come to be with us. So that is what John, from the get-go, he wants you blown away by that reality. I'm going to tell you in the first sentence who this is that has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. You will not be guessing. You will not have the same question marks the disciples had above their heads as Jesus does wonderful things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and God has come for you. That's the first thing he wants us to see. But that's not all John is showing us. As he has one foot in Genesis and one foot in Bethlehem, that's not all he's showing us. There's two more creation images that we see, two more things that are, play a very prominent role in Genesis 1 and 2 that John is going to draw on light and life. Verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so what's John doing? He's showing us our salvation is here, and with this salvation is a kind of new beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the beginning, the Word came and shined His light and brought his life. When in his arrival, in his Christmas arrival, there's, in a sense, the beginnings of the new heavens and the new earth. Again, this is not another Moses. There's something new happening here. The thrill of hope we sing. A weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Light and life to all he bring, risen with healing in his wings. So light and life, those are the next two things. Let's, let's look at the first one first, light with us. So in Genesis, what do we see right at the beginning? What, what is, what's the description before God says his first command? What, how, how are things described in the second verse of the scriptures? Look at Genesis 1 verse 2. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. In the beginning, there was God, and there's darkness. And then what do we see in verse 3? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. We see that in Genesis. And now we are in an exile world. And how is it so often described? Darkness. And what do we see happening in Bethlehem? Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. 
As God said, let there be light in Genesis, he says, let there be light in Bethlehem when he sends his son. And exile darkness, as you and I know all too well, is not just the absence of illumination. It's not a passive world that's just, uh, just devoid of good. Exile darkness is a wicked dominion ruled by the prince of darkness. Evil princes and powers in this present darkness, Ephesians 6 describes it, this terrible world of darkness that we saw in exile that has held you and I captive. And yet on Christmas night, who comes? The light of the world. And he invades that darkness. And we see the rest of verse 5, the darkness has not overcome it. As he invades, darkness flees. What do we see as we look at Jesus' life? We've seen this in Matthew. When Jesus encounters darkness, what happens? Is it a, is it a close fight? Or does sickness flee from him the second he says it? Do demons rear up and attack him and wrestle, but Jesus is just a little bit stronger? Or do they pee their pants when he shows up? Does the storm and the waves crash and it just takes a while and he finally gets the people to, sh to shore? Or does he say, be quiet, and the hurricane shuts its mouth when the light of the world comes into our wicked dominion of darkness Darkness flees, and the light of the world has come into our wicked dominion of darkness, and he has shone in. And as he shines and pushes back darkness, we actually begin to see our own eyes begin to see again. Do you remember how Adam and Eve's temptation was described I don't have it up on the slides, but as Eve is slowly listening to the lies of the serpent, what, is, what does she say? Oh, this food is a delight to the eyes. And as they take a bite, what does it say? Their eyes are opened. And then what's the immediate result? They know they're naked. So we see as their eyes are opened, as the serpent promised they would be, what's the immediate result? They realize they're blind. They've just blinded themselves. That's exile existence. We talked about it. All of our pursuits, the things that we think will make us happy, ironically, lead exactly to our death, exactly like the fruit. It's a delight to the eyes, and what does it do? It kills us. That's where we're stuck, and then Emmanuel comes, the light comes, he shines and pushes back the darkness, and he actually begins to transform our eyes where we can see again. We see the true delight to the eyes. What does Jesus say? I am the light of the world in John 8, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Again, John 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. As the light shines, he's not just shining and pushing back darkness and you're just uh, sitting on the sidelines. Your eyes begin to be enlightened. You can see again. We see this as Jesus is preaching in John 10, I believe, uh, he offends a lot of people. He talks about election, and it offended a lot of people then, just like it offends a lot of people now, and people leave him. They say, this teaching is too hard for us, and they leave him, and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter gives this great line where he just says, where else are we going to go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. And what we see there is Peter's beginning to see. He can't really describe it yet. He doesn't just say, they don't understand truth. You're just saying truth. He says, I, when you speak, something happens here that I've never tasted before. 
And my eyes are beginning to see something that I've never seen before. Where else would I go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. And Paul will later tell us that's exactly what happens. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, the God of this world, the God of the universe has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the world has come and he radically reshapes who we are. We can say with John Newton, I was blind, now I see. The light of the world has opened our eyes. Peter says, the one who asked Jesus that question, where else would we go, says later as he understands what's happened to him. In 1 Peter 2, speaking to the Christians he's writing to, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That's the message of Christmas. God has come down with us and light has come down with us. And it hasn't just, he hasn't just shown us light. He's brought us into light. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Light has come to open your eyes. Are they open? Are you still walking in darkness or can you say, I've been called out of darkness. He has delivered me from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom, the kingdom of his son, the light of the world. Light has come down. That's the first thing John says. And the second piece that he's showing us in Bethlehem isn't just light, it's also life. Life itself, life himself has come down and dwelt among us. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life. Life is the second thing that's come down. So we see in Genesis, again, we see in the beginning, John's already made a very strong allusion. We see light, let there be light, right? The first command of the scriptures. What's the other thing we see everywhere in Genesis 1 and 2? Life. We see birds and fish flourishing, right? And reproducing, right? One after its own kind. We see trees flourishing and seeds after their own kind. We just see life everywhere. And then we see man and woman created, be fruitful and multiply. Go create more life, right? That's the command. We see the tree of life is there. We just see life everywhere. And then zooming in, even in Genesis 2-7, we see this. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, into Adam's nostrils, what? The breath of life. And man became a living creature. That's what we see in Genesis. Darkness, light shining, and then life everywhere. And then now, fast forwarding to John 1, to Bethlehem, we see in our exile world that's ruled by what? Death. What was Adam told, from dust you are and to dust you will return. You will work by the sweat of your brow and your reward for all of your hard work of life is going back into the ground. It's death. Death is undefeated in exile. That is the ultimate destiny of everyone. That is our exile existence. To dust you will return. We're barred from the tree of life. And then on Christmas night, 
life himself comes down and begins to breathe into our nostrils again. Life himself comes down to dwell among us throughout his ministry again. You see Jesus saying things like, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. John in his letter, 1 John, even summarize again, coming to a greater understanding, says this, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. How does God give you eternal life? He sends his son to the manger. Life has come down to dwell among us. And so you, again, may be thinking, yes, uh, isn't that kind of Jesus 101, right? Jesus came so that I could live, right? That's even in a really short summary statements. And yes, it is, I guess you could say, Jesus 101. If you know much about Jesus, even if you don't believe in Jesus, you would say that's, that's the story of what he's come to do. But I want to suggest to us that this is something we often tragically miss. We often tragically miss the life that he has meant to bring. Everyone in this room, I would imagine, is a good Protestant, unless you're a Catholic and you accidentally came in here. Uh, and if so, welcome. Uh, but I imagine we are very, very, very focused, rightly so, on the cross. And so in the story of Jesus' life, what we typically do is we say, Christmas, Easter, and we get there quick. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter. We say he's born and then he died, right? So what's the result? That's a good thing. What's the result? We really, really understand forgiveness. We do. Great thing to understand. We very, very rarely grasp the life that Jesus brought us. What do I mean? Might I suggest that, again, I feel this in myself, and I know you, walk with, you wrestle with this too. Many of us, this is how we live. We understand the cross. We understand forgiveness. We will go to the cross, and we will get forgiven. And then we will go back to trying to perform Right? Because God cares about holiness, so I'll go keep trying to walk holy, and then I'll fail again, and I'll go back to the cross, and I'll get forgiven. And then I'll go try and try and try again until I fail again, and then I go to the cross again, and then I get forgiven. And that's how we live. We live in this constant cycle of low-level guilt. And though we have salvation in the cross, we ironically are trying to earn constantly. We're constantly trying to perform. We're very aware of our failures. And we do have a constant get-out-of-jail-free card in forgiveness that we constantly go to, but that's how we live. And I think one of the things we've missed is the life that Jesus has brought us. Let me give you an example. I've used this example before. Uh, I'm picking on Tom Hanks. Uh, Saving Private Ryan is, is one of the greatest war movies uh, ever made, at least in, I think so. A lot of people share that opinion. I do have some beef with it, though. Uh, so, Tom, if you're listening, you know, you could rewrite it in the 50th anniversary visit. But at the end of Saving Private Ryan, they go and they save Private Ryan, okay? So there's this big battle, and Tom uh, Hanks gets shot, spoiler, and he's dying, and he pulls in Private Ryan and very, very quietly whispers into his ear. Anybody know the line? Earn this. Earn this. And then he lets him go, and then he dies. And everyone's like, oh, man, I would have signed up and fought in Germany. And that, what a great movie. And I think, what a jerk Tom Hanks is. What a jerk. Ryan has just received free salvation. They didn't come save him because he was the best soldier. 
He's just received by no works of his own deliverance, salvation. And right at the end of his life, the one who gave him that salvation pulls him in and says, work the rest of your life and perform. And then it pans to Ryan as an old dying man at Tom Hanks's grave. And he says, all my life I've been trying to earn. I hope it was enough. And it pans to the credits. And I think what a miserable life he must have lived. No joy of I was saved completely out of my own will. Someone else came and saved me completely by grace. Rather, I'm saved. Yes, I'm going to live my life constantly trying to measure up. And that is how so many of us live. When Jesus came, because you can't measure up, Life came because he knew your best efforts lead to filthy rags. He came so that he could live the perfect life on your behalf. And as he takes your raggedy robes and gives you his righteous robes, the father could look at you and say, I don't see your failure. I see my son's success. He didn't just come to be a constant forgiveness machine. Nothing changes about your life. Keep trying to earn salvation, but you get constant do-overs. Rather, he came to say, I'm going to do it on your behalf. I'm going to resist the devil's temptation because you don't and you can't. And I'm not just going to die the death that you should have died. I'm going to live the life you should have lived. And the Spirit is going to unite you to me where you are in Christ and so that you can be radically remade and you can say like Paul, there's no Paul left. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me and gave himself for me. So that you can actually live and believe the sweet words of Colossians 3. My life is hidden with Christ in God. When you go before the Father, don't dare say what Matt Damon attempted to say to Tom Hanks. I've lived all my life trying to earn this. I hope it's enough. It will not be enough. You go before the Father and you say, I never came close, but one came for me who did, who perfectly lived life for me and gave me his life. Oh, Father, I come to you with nothing but the blood of your Son and the perfect record of your Son And he will say, come, my child, in whom I am well pleased. You see that difference? That's the message of Christmas. He knows you can't do it. Get out of this cycle and actually live in Christmas joy. I fail all the time, and there's one who never failed and gave me his life, lived the life that I couldn't live so that I could say, not by my doing, completely by grace. Leo the Great, an ancient pope in the 5th century, says this, Christ became the Son of Man so that we could become children of God. Had he not so lowered himself as to come down to us, none of us could ever have gone to him by any merit of our own. Look at me. The whole point of the gospel is you and I cannot rise up to God, and so God came down to us. Stop trying to rise up to God when your God has come down to you and has united you to himself. You're in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in 
God. That is what the baby in the manger has come to do. That is the joy of our Emmanuel. Wonder of all wonders, God has come. Light has come to shine into our darkness and finally open our blind eyes where we can truly see the delight of our hearts, him. And our life has come to live the life that we could try but can never measure up to live, that we could finally get out of our exile. So that's where we are as we observe Advent together. Our miserable exile, our frustrated hope, and finally, Emmanuel has come for us to truly deliver us once and for all. And next week, we will look at how do we respond? How do we respond to such news that God himself has come? I want to close our time by reading a a Christmas poem, one of my favorite Christmas poems, if you can call it that. Uh, by Glenn Scrivener. I actually read this a a few years ago. It's called Jesus versus Santa. Uh, So that kind of dates it. We have less creative titles nowadays. Uh, But he's getting at, it's a poem about a lot of the stuff we've been discussing, how the reality of Christmas, the joy of Emmanuel, obliterates how we typically view God, the false way we typically view God, and actually fills our hearts with the Christmas wonder and the Christmas joy we're meant to have. They say there's a big man who lives far away, supposedly jolly, but it's hard to say. I've never seen him, and neither have you, but the children believe. I suppose that'll do. He's known as a loner with many a quirk, no time for a chat. He's embroiled in his work. He keeps to himself for most of the year. I reckon we're grateful he doesn't appear. We send him requests for particular needs, but we never hear back. Who knows if he heeds? We try to be good, give his arm a twist to merit our place on his blessed little list. And maybe one day, if we've done all we should, he'll give us our things just so long as we're good. I've had it to hear. I'm calling his bluff. He's a weird, moralistic dispenser of stuff. Granted, this rant's a strange one to pick. But listen, I'm not really after St. Nick. As strange as he is and Santa is odd, I'm really addressing most folks' view of God. It's God who we see as some distant big guy, some ancient, invisible St. Nick in the sky, He sees when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he's watching and waiting to spot your mistake, and just like Santa, requests we hand in. We want all his things, but we don't want him. That's our connection to old Father Christmas. We might dress it up, but it's essentially business. Throughout the year, good behavior's our onus. When When Christmas rolls around, we're expecting our bonus. Just leave us our gifts, Nick, we've been good enough. Now please push on, now we've got all your stuff. I mean, Santa is interesting, curious, quirky but nobody wants him to share their turkey. I'm sure his ho-ho-hos are sublime, but I fear what he'll say once he's drunk all our wine. That's old St. Nick, but the picture rings true. It's how we imagine what God is like too. But Christmas resounds with a stunning not-so. The one from on high was born down below. To a world in need, he did not send another. God the Son became God our brother. He drew alongside forever to dwell, our God in the flesh, Emmanuel. This God in the manger upends all our notions, a heavenly stooping, divine demotion. Born in a stable, wriggling on straw, fully committed to life in the raw. Santa gives things and then goes away. Jesus shows up to befriend and to stay. Santa rewards those for good behavior, Jesus draws near to the broken as Savior. 
If you don't like God, I think I know why. You probably think he's St. Nick in the sky. You're right to reject some faraway stranger. This Christmas, look down to the God in the manger. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your Son, the light of the world, coming to shine into our darkness, I pray that you would do that by your Spirit, that you would, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that the eyes of the hearts might be enlightened as we gaze at the manger to see the speechless wonders that God has come to dwell among us. And he's come to live the perfect life that we could not live, and he's come to take the eternal wrath that hung over each of our heads, that justice demands must be poured out, and it was poured out on him so that perfect justice can be satisfied and perfect mercy, mercy be dispensed. And now he's with us. Our home has come to us when your son comes down in Bethlehem. I pray that you would open our eyes to that, that we might, like David in Psalm 8, but all the more, stand in speechless wonder and say, who is God that he is mindful of us? Who is God that he would send his son for us? But know that that is how incredible your love is. That is how you show the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. I pray that we would see it and that we would taste it, especially as we go to the table, Lord. I pray in your son's wonderful name. Amen.